Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Good morning. We're continuing our uh, series in 1 Corinthians today, and we're going to go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And um, this is uh, a a chapter where it becomes really clear, you know, uh, the theme that Doug picked out for this uh, series in 1 Corinthians was seeing things through gospel eyes. And here, Paul's put to the test with this. And if you've been reading along so far, like going through 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 2, and 3, and even peeked ahead to 4, um, maybe you had the same questions that I did as I'm going through here. I got these two questions. I'm going like, number one, why does Paul keep bringing up Apollos? Like in chapter 1, he's bringing up Apollos. You know, chapter 2, it's Apollos. And then, uh, I'm I'm sorry, chapter 3, it's Apollos. And then chapter 4, again, he's back to Apollos. What's the deal with Apollos. And the second thing is, why is Paul so defensive? I mean, he, you can see he's, there's something bothering him. And it's almost like he's trying to prove himself here somehow. So what's going on? So first of all, let's just take a look and find out a little bit about Apollos. You know, the one place where he's mentioned outside of like Paul's writing is in Acts chapter 18. So let's just check out a little of the bio of this guy. It says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism, so apparently he hadn't been clued in totally about the Holy Spirit. And it says, when Priscilla and Aquila, and these are a couple of pals of, of, um, of Paul, Um, they heard him preaching boldly in a synagogue. They took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So we see here, this guy's got a lot of fire. He's a great speaker. Probably, I get the idea, this guy had a lot of charisma, right? And then it says, Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia. Now, Achaia, that's Corinth. Okay, that's the state where Corinth is. So he he said, hey, there's these believers in Corinth. Maybe I could be of help there. The brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged them to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. So the guy, you know, he got into that church there, and he's uh, teaching, and he's preaching there. People go, I love this guy. He's really good. He's very helpful. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So you get the idea here, what's going on, right? Paul's a guy who's kind of a church planter, evangelist. He's been going around doing all this hard work, all the grunt labor, bringing people to the Lord, you know, preaching the message, forming them into like a a body of believers. And then Paul's on his way, going other places, doing that same thing, doing that hard work. Apollos uh, arrives. We got this guy who's got these teaching gifts And he's like having a great success uh, over there. And I think Paul felt a little bit like, wow, I mean, this guy's kind of taken over what was my church, right? It's kind of like if you know anything about the uh, the modern-day civil rights movement, um, a lot of times we focus on Martin Luther King, 
Um, but the guy who really did the initial work and got things rolling was a man named Ralph David Abernathy. And he did the work, uh, got things rolling, and then he mentored a young pastor from Atlanta named Martin Luther King Jr. And it turned out that Martin Luther King Jr. was an eloquent guy, right? Had a lot of charisma and stuff. And so, you know, you can see uh, Ralph David Abernathy, he's in the middle of that picture, but hardly anybody today has ever heard about him, have they? You know, and it's like King came to the forefront, and it was like, Ralph who? And I think that's the way Paul felt. He's going like, Paul who? You know, it's all about Apollos now. And then um, I think we also, Paul was feeling uh, dispensable, and he was feeling like unappreciated. And you can see this when you get to the eighth verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So Paul, Paul's getting real sarcastic here. You can see he's kind of bugged. He goes like, speaking to the Corinthian church, he goes, you think you've already everything you need. You think you're already rich. You've begun to reign in God's kingdom and without us. Can you hear that? Without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. And Paul's feeling kind of low at this particular point. It's like he, he feels like he's been kind of forgotten and maybe feeling like, hey, where's the, uh, where's the appreciation, really? You know, um, it kind of reminded me of a parallel story here of what happened with Apple. You know, Apple's like this huge company that owns you know, part of the world, basically, at this point. But when they started... There were two guys, right, who really got the thing going. One was a guy named Steve Wozniak. He's the guy who's on the left there. The other one was Steve Jobs, who's on the right. Wozniak was a guy who did all the work, uh, doing the, inventing the computers, doing, you know, doing all these systems that were just brand new, brilliant kind of stuff. Jobs was good at packaging and making this stuff like really appealing to the public. You know, both of them brilliant guys. And they worked kind of like in an uneasy partnership for a while. And then Wozniak got into a terrible plane crash. He was in a small plane. The thing went down, and he was in a hospital literally for months. Um, just really, it's very, very slow recovery. When Wozniak came back to the company, Jobs had pretty much taken it over. And it was like uh, there was no real place for him in a big way anymore, and these guys ended up parting their ways. And today, when we think about Apple, um, Steve Wozniak is Steve who? But Steve Jobs, that's the guy they make movies about and have hugely long bios, one of which I remember reading, you know, and he became the real face of the whole thing. And Paul, you know, Wozniak was was Paul. And uh, Apollos was Steve Jobs. And Paul's feeling a little bugged about this whole thing. And so Paul's kind of figuring out, and I think the unspoken question in this chapter is, what's my role? Like, who am I? How do, how do I see my, my life, my ministry, my job? You know, maybe you've been in a situation like that where you've, you've labored and you've worked hard and you've, you've built things and you've made things go, and then you find yourself like maybe kind of being ignored after a while. You take your work for granted Maybe somebody else is getting more glory. Somebody else is getting more attention. And you feel kind of like, wow, I'm, you know, and I think that happens to people when they retire from a job. 
You know, they go like, well, here's your gold watch. And then you leave, and it's like you've, you're forgotten. You realize how dispensable you actually are, you know. Or you're like, a, you got the empty nest thing happen in your home, and your kids leave, and they don't need you anymore. That's the way it should be, too. You should be independent, but you kind of feel like, well, how come they don't call? You know, why don't they ask me for advice? I mean, I, I say these things to Nan. I go, like, I got all this wisdom. Nobody's asking for it. <laughs> you know, they could, if they just came to me, you know. So I'm like, what's my role now? What's the deal? And I think Paul's grappling with that. That's a tough question. If you haven't hit that point in your life, you're going to hit that point. You know, and so how is he going to look at it? And one way you could have looked at this was like the be better than Ryan, looking at through the be better than Ryan eyes. Uh, Rob Long tells a story about a friend of his. And his kid had, you know, he had this kid who was like nine years old. And the kid was really serious about tennis. Uh, and one day he comes into his kid's bedroom and he sees on the bulletin board over the kid's bed uh, tacked up this handwritten sign, be better than Ryan. So he asks his kid, he goes like, what's with the sign? He goes like, oh, you know, you know Ryan, my friend. Well, he's better at tennis than I am. He's better at math too and, and other stuff. And I want to be, and this sign, I'm just trying to remind myself, I want to work hard and be better than Ryan. So his dad's going like, you don't have to be better than Ryan, just be, you know, keep working, be improved. You know, kids... Don't get, I don't get that, you know? And so he's going, yeah, 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 you know? And, so, and then the father says, well, what happens when Ryan comes over here for a sleepover or to hang out? He goes, well, I'll make sure I take that sign down, you know, before he comes. So about three weeks later, the kid comes in, he's talking to his dad. He goes, oh, dad, I got to tell you something. You know, Ryan came over and I forgot to take down a sign. So uh, his dad goes, well, what was Ryan's reaction when he saw the sign? So Ryan, he said, well, Ryan said, why do you have that sign up there? He goes, well, you're better than I am at tennis and at math, and I wanted to remind myself that I want to be better than you. And the uh, father said, well, what was Ryan's reaction? And Ryan went, well, um, now that I saw that sign, I'm going to work extra hard so I can be better than, stay better than you. <laughs> and then his father goes, well, th then what happened? He said, the kid goes, well, then we played video games and had a pizza. <laughs> I got to appreciate those kids, don't you? But, you know, that could have been a way that Paul went. He could have tacked up a little sign over his bed that said, be better than Apollos. You know, I got to work harder, and I got to, you know. But that wasn't Paul's way, because Paul wasn't seeing it through those eyes. He was seeing things through gospel eyes. And this is something that I think I want to learn, and I think maybe this would be good for you to learn, too, to see these things this way. And Paul realized about four things here as he saw his situation through gospel eyes. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. That word servants there, typically in the Bible when they use the word servants, it's a word that can be translated as slaves. I guess it's this word doulas. But that isn't this word here. It's a different word. It's a word that literally means under rowers, under rowers. If you're an old guy like me, it would remind you a little bit of just Ben-Hur, right? So it's like, and Paul's going with his gospel eyes, he began to see, hey, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm not the captain of a ship. You know, so it isn't about me getting glory. It's really about me serving the real captain of the ship, who's Jesus. There's Ben-Hur, and if you know anything about the story, the idea is that this guy has a big estate, he's got servants, you know, he's got the, 
He's got a big thing going, one of the top guys in the society. And then he runs afoul of the Roman uh, politicians. And he ends up as a slave in a galley, just rowing along with like hundreds of other sailors and everything. He's like an underling right there. And you know what? If you, you, know, you start to realize this in your own life as servants of Jesus, that's who we are. We're serving him. And that can be a real humbling experience, like rowing in the bottom of a trireme, you know. Uh, it reminds me of when I uh, first started teaching. And my, my, this, my, my view of teaching before I did it was, yeah, I'm going to be up in front of the classroom. I'm going to have these kids. They're going to be sitting at my feet. And I'm going to be like casting these pearls out there and they're going to be oh so great and they're going to challenge me and I thought I want to teach high school not grade school uh, I don't want to be like Stacy teaching like junior high school kids because you got to like do all kinds of you know menial work and everything I want these more mature kids very first day of teaching 51 years ago very first day I'm teaching a freshman English class right before the class starts this kid comes up and he goes, Mr. Fetsky, and he pulls his hand over his face, and he throws up through his fingers. <laughs> I'm going, this, is, I, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, I'm supposed to be like, kids are, you know, and, and it, it just got worse. And if you've ever been in teaching, you know what that's like, right? I mean, I'm going like, yes, I'm going to, English teacher, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach these great works, you know, and they're going to go like, oh, you know, teach me, Mr. Fetsky. And I realized they're going like, no, keep those works away. I don't want to learn. You know, it's like you're an entertainer. You're, we don't, we're not interested in your wisdom or anything. You learn it's about being a servant, don't you? You know, I've talked to uh, women um, who have told me, you know, my girlfriends are all getting pregnant and stuff, and, and my husband and I don't have any children, and I'd love to have a child because that would be, bring real fulfillment into my life. And then they have a child. And it does bring fulfillment, no question about it. But it's a lot less, it's like 20% fulfillment, right? And it's about 80% cleaning up messes and people never say, and little kids don't go like, thank you, I appreciate this, right? They go, feed me, change my diaper, entertain me, hold me, you know? And it's just like, it's the galley slave again, isn't it? It's just like, and that's the way it is, in, you know, as a servant of Jesus Christ. You go, man, I'm a servant of the Lord. It isn't about me being the captain of the ship. And then he says in verse 2, he goes, now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. And so the second thing is, yeah, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm a manager working for Jesus. I'm not the owner of a place. You know, it's like, um, if you ever saw Downton Abbey, you know, it's like Lord Grantham owns the joint, right? He owns Downton Abbey. Carson is the butler. He's the steward. He's the manager. And everything that Carson does then is with an eye toward how can I make Lord Grantham happy? How can I enhance his position? And this is something I think we forget as followers of Jesus. We, we, can't, we start getting this illusion that it's my money. It's my time. Uh, it's my gifts and my ability. Hey, we're just managing it. Every cent we've got, we're just money managers for the Lord. And he's going, it's my money, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And the time and things like that. It's a whole different kind of perspective when you have a, a manager's thing. So Paul's seeing this uh, in, with gospel eyes, and he's going, yeah, I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm a, 
and I'm a manager for him. That's what the deal is. And so when I'm evaluating my work, and I'm trying to think about, okay, how do I judge how well I'm doing? He's going, you know, verse 3, he says, As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. See, ultimately, it's like I don't work, I don't work for my kids at school. I don't serve them. I don't, ultimately, I don't serve the parents in my school or my, my principal or my superintendent. I'm serving Jesus. And so when I'm evaluating my work, I'm not looking, you know, I'm not measuring it by how many likes I get from them. Ultimately, I'm serving him. And that's a real important thing. You know, if I'm a servant of and a manager for Jesus, I don't evaluate myself by approval ratings from other people. You know, and other people are, are really willing to give their approval ratings. I don't know if you can see this very well, uh, but I couldn't figure out a way to make it bigger without going through about 10 slides. But this is from a, a cartoon strip called Fraz, and uh, there's this curmudgeonly old teacher. He's the janitor of the school, and this curmudgeonly teacher said, this weird year has at least made me a better person. I'm judging people for not wearing a mask when they're out, not outdoors and far apart. I'm judging people for wearing a mask but deliberately wearing it wrong. I'm judging people for getting sloppy indoors and in crowds. I'm judging people for thinking significant progress is the same thing as being all done. And I'm judging them for squandering that significant progress by thinking that way. And this woman goes, that's a lot of judging for a better person. And this curmudgeonly teacher says, normally this time of year I'm judging people for wearing sandals that show their ugly toes. <laughs> you know what? There's plenty of mask judgers out there, aren't there? And there's plenty of just people who are judging you for everything. And I'll tell you what, we never would have opened up the school I'm teaching at nine weeks ago uh, if we were listening to the crowds out there, you know, if we were serving them. Because I'll tell you what, we got neighbors around our school who are all too willing to make phone calls into school going, now I was looking through my window and I saw your football coach had his mask under his nose. And if you, were, if you cared about people and didn't want them to die, you wouldn't even open your school. You know, hey, we're not serving you, lady. And we don't say that to her. You know, we go, well, thank you for sharing, you know. We'll put you into, in touch with our athletic director, you know. But, but we're serving Jesus. And we, get, we got a clear word. You need to open, and you need to be face-to-face -face with your students, you know. It's, it's for their good. You do that, you know. And the same way in our lives, you know, too often, we're just kind of like, how can I make everybody around me feel happy? How can I please them? How can I make them feel comfortable? But we really, you know, really need to say, that's not the, my ultimate evaluation. I mean, that might be part of the deal. We can't be obnoxious and jerks, you know. But we still need to realize who is doing the ultimate evaluation. And Paul says, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. And if I'm a servant of and a manager for Jesus, I don't even trust my own feelings about myself. Because I know only too well I can rationalize any bad behavior of mine. I can, I can make that case that it's right. You know, and I can easily persuade myself. My conscience uh, is too easily malleable. You know, um, there's that famous story, if you've been in theater, you've probably heard this, of uh, a production of Anne Frank. And Anne Frank's a, a great play, right? Based on a true story about the Frank family, Anne Frank, the young girl. And uh, they're hiding out from the Nazis in World War II in a house of some 
friendly Christian people, and um, they're hiding in the attic. But the, this production of Anne Frank was terrible. And maybe you've been at plays like this where the acting is horrible, and it's like the pacing is slow, and you're going like, oh. I mean, by the time they get to intermission, you're going, how can I get out of here? It's so bad. This play was so bad that like, as when the Gestapo first shows up about halfway through, somebody in the crowd shouted out, she's in the attic, she's in the attic. You know, and it's like, yeah, Rob, Rob Long, who's like a Hollywood producer, he said, you know, he's been invited to plays like that, uh, that are so terrible, and his friends are the ones who are the actors, or the, they're directing the play, and then he's invited to a reception afterwards. And he goes like, what do you say when they go like, wow, what'd you think of it? And he says, I've turned into a total sociopath. You know, he says, I just go like, oh, it was great. He says, he, he says I just tell them what they want to hear. And he says, you know, people don't want to really hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth, you know. They just, they just want to hear that they're awesome. And we live in a society where we kind of sense that, and so we're continually stroking each other, and yeah, you're doing great and stuff like that. And so after a while, we have a hard time even evaluating what's, what's right and what's wrong. So how are we going to do that, you know? Uh, the accurate evaluation, Paul says this. He goes, it's the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praises do. You know, we wait our time, you know. Uh, Charles Swindoll, who's a great Bible teacher, uh, he tells a story about one of the lowest times in his li life. And he said he was preaching at this um, week-long, religious emphasis week kind of thing, every night, right? And he said every night there was this couple that would show up, kind of an older couple, and the guy would be awake for the first five minutes and the guy would fall asleep. And he's noticeably asleep in the front row. And this is bugging Charles Swindoll. He's just like irritated at this guy. And they get through the last day of this thing. You know, it's the fifth day. And the thing's over. The guy's wife comes up and, uh, to talk to Charles Swindoll. And he's going, yeah, well, she's probably going to explain, hey, we need to pray for my husband. He's just not that spiritual, whatever. And the wife says, I just want to thank you for a great week. I just appreciated this so much. But I'll tell you, this week meant so much to my husband. She said, you know, he's heavily medicated because he only has a few weeks left to live. But you're his favorite Bible teacher, and his final wish was that he get a chance to hear you in person before he died. Charles Swindell said, I felt so terrible. <laughs> he had totally misjudged the guy. You know, and that's what Paul's saying. We, we don't know. We don't know enough to really make a good evaluation. You know, so... We leave it up to the Lord. But he said, you know, but at least we know what God's judgment criteria is. You know, Jesus told his disciples this in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about the Old Testament commandments. And he said to them, if you ignore the least of these commands, the least commandment, and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we're saved by grace. God has invited us into his kingdom. But once we're in there, then he evaluates our performance. 
really by how closely we followed his, his commands. And that's why we need to stick close to the Word of God. Instead of judging by the world's standards and by our own feelings, we need to be following what the, what the Lord is really saying. And he's going like, I'll, I honor that. And when you, I tell my kids at school, I go, you can be a seven-year-old kid and be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You know, as you just faithfully follow what the Lord says, you're honoring your parents, you know, just things like that. And then you're encouraging other people to do the very same thing, you know, and encouraging them on in their obedience to the Lord. And Paul says, you know, I'm a servant, I'm a manager, but I'm also small in strength. He admits that. Not an invincible hero. And he goes on, and I, I showed you this verse before about how he feels like he's a prisoner of war. But he even goes on from there. He says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're so powerful. You are honored, but we're ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and have no home. Um, he's just going like, man, I'm small in strength. He's realizing he's not a big shot, you know. He's not an invincible hero. He's suffering, you know, and, and dis despised by a lot of people. Not the Corinthian people so much, but just people out there that he's bringing a word to who don't accept it. And yet, this is what's really a blessing. Even though I'm small in strength and I'm not like superhero, he's going, I can be faithful in what God honors. And he goes on, and look what he says. In spite of the fact that he's that he's in trouble and stuff like this all the time. He perseveres in a witness of love. He says, we work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We're patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, yet we're treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. You know, when, we are, uh, when we're young, we're continually given messages like, you can change the world. You know, we'll change the world. We're going to do great things. And we have this, like, we have these visions of how we're just going to, like, be on the top and do all this kind of stuff. And I'll tell you what, as we get older, I think we get a little wiser. And we start realizing, you know, we're not that huge. We're not like maybe the big world changers that we always uh, wanted to be. We're kind of small in the things that we can do in our little spheres of influence. And I, I'm reading this, I, I just finished reading this book, actually, which is just an awesome book by a guy named uh, J. Todd Billings. I found this in a public library. The End of the Christian Life. Uh, how, do we, how embracing our mortality frees us to truly live. And this, guy, this interesting guy, he's dying. Uh, this last book he's probably ever going to write. And he talks about how we as American Christians have many times bought into our society's thing of denying death. We deny the fact of our own mortality. We just don't want to face that. And he says we've kind of bought into a prosperity gospel. It's not a prosperity gospel so much of money, but it's a prosperity gospel of health and longevity. We kind of look at God as the guy who, like, we're, he's the guy who's in charge of keeping us healthy and safe and living long lives. And we get kind of upset when God doesn't come through. We're trying to figure out ways that we can like command this long life and health. We get kind of mad when somebody dies young. Like, why did that happen? Don't get this kind of stuff. 
But he says, you know, the best thing for us to do would be to number our days and to realize we don't have that much time in this world. You know, some of us have less than others, right? And when we start looking at that and facing that and realizing, hey, our, our time is small, that changes our perspective. It changes our perspective. You know, what happens when people finally realize, hey, I can't, even these extreme medical treatments aren't going to cure this, I'm going to die. You know what they do? They draw closer to the Lord. We draw closer to the Lord. We realize our dependence upon him. And then what else do we do? As we draw closer to the Lord, we draw closer to other people. You know, you don't see people who know they have two weeks to live worry about their ambition and their career anymore. What do they think about? I want my loved ones to be with me. And we start realizing that's where it was, and we grow generous in our love. And that's what Paul was. He wasn't thinking, I'm going to die imminently, although sometimes he did. But he's realizing, I'm small, you know, and I'm, I'm just getting battered here. But it's all about loving others in, in the name of Jesus. That's what Gospel Eyes gives you. And I love what Billings says in, this, uh, in his conclusion in the book. He said, we're not heroes of the world, and we can't do much. But we can love generously, and we can bear witness to the one who is the origin and end of life itself, the everlasting Lord, the Alpha and Omega, the crucified and risen Savior who has accomplished and will bring about what we could never bring about ourselves. You know, when we, will, when we realize how small we are and how mortal we are, we value our time. And we're going, look, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be in such a rush. I'm going to take time for people and I'm going to love them. Finally, uh, Paul concludes with this. I can represent Jesus with a lifestyle of integrity that's worthy of imitation. Check this section out toward the end of the chapter. He says, I'm, not writing, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Whoa! I mean, he doesn't say, imitate Christ. He goes, imitate me. Wow. He goes, for this reason, I have sent you to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He's going, you know what? You can imitate me because my lifestyle matches up with what I teach. You know, and I'm thinking, imitate me? Could I say that? Could I say that to, to you? Could I say that to my fellow teachers, to my students at school? Hey, imitate me. Uh, to my kids? You know, could I say this to my neighbors? You know, Paul wasn't able to say that because what he taught, he did. You know, and I'm a guy who teaches ethics, and I'm going, we need to be honest. You know, we need to walk faithfully and not be, you know, give in to lust. And we need to, we need to be kind to one another and love our enemies and, and be gentle. And I'm going, like, is, does my lifestyle match up with that? You know, that's a, that's a big thing. That's a big thing because that's preaching a real message, isn't it? It's, it's interesting. Uh, there was this uh, study done by Darley and Batson that's kind of famous and, uh, in 1973. And what they did was they got a whole bunch of uh, uh, seminarian students. And they said, uh, look, at, we want you to, to give a message and we're going to give you like an evaluation of it. So they got all these guys, you know, from this theological seminary, and they gave some of them one topic, some another, but most of them they gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, that's where the guy stops alongside the road and he helps the guy out, right? 
And Jesus says, that's how we're to love our neighbors. So, so <coughs> he's, now this thing took place like this. <coughs> they had this time of instruction and going through the story or whatever they were supposed to do in the one building. And they said, okay, now you've got to go over to this auditorium in this other building, and that is going to be where you're going to give the speech. And then, but what they did was they put an actor between the two buildings. And this guy looks like he's been injured or drunk or something. He's groaning and, and hurting alongside the road. And then they sent the, the people that were said, okay, the people who were instructed, they sent them over there to give their speech to see how many would stop to help the guy who's hurting by the side of the road. You know, they, they found out hardly anybody stopped. They're supposed to be preaching about it, but they didn't stop. And what they found out was the reason that people that decided whether they would stop or not was not how spiritual they were. It was not about how knowledgeable they were about the Bible or what denomination that they came from. You know what it was? It was like how much time they were given. So if they go like, okay, you got an hour and 10 minutes before you give your speech, they might stop. But if you have like 15 minutes, they didn't. You know? And it's like it's hard to make, uh, you know, our, our, our lives match up with our words, you know? But Paul says, that's got to be like an emphasis here. As I see that I'm a servant of Jesus, you know, not a servant of the graders in here, or of my theological seminary or whatever. When I see I'm a servant of Jesus, I'm a manager of what he's given me. When I realize that it's about loving generously, even though I, I have a small sphere of influence, then I can do things like that with his power. That'll come through for me. And here's the interesting thing. At the end, Paul says, pretty much toward the end, he says, for the kingdom of God is not just a, a lot of talk. It's living by God's power. Which do you choose? You know, the, the great irony of this chapter is because today, you know, Paul starts out and he's going, yeah, Paulus is a great speaker, you know, and I think it's in the back of his mind. But who's the guy that we remember? It's Paul, isn't it? You know, little guy. In fact, his name actually was originally Saul, which meant, you know, kind of a strong name. And he said, just call me Paul, which means in Latin, small. But he loved generously. He knew he was a servant of Jesus and a manager and he lived a, a generous kind of loving life, which is something we were called to, too. So let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to you this morning, we're your uh, servants, Lord Jesus. We're your managers. And we pray that, that you would uh, find us faithful, Lord. Empower us. But give us those gospel eyes to see what our real role is right here and to faithfully go forward in the generosity and the love that you showed us first. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.